Welcome to the podcast of Grace Crossing Church, where life and faith intersect. Now this morning we come back to week number three uh, of our series entitled Detour. In this series, we are taking together a tour of discipleship, hence the name D-Tour. We've been talking in this series about that word, disciple or discipleship. Uh, The word appears in the New Testament some 300 times, uh, used almost exclusively by Jesus in the Gospels. When he's referring to people who were following him, he did not call them Christians. In fact, he never utters those words or that word, Christian. But rather, he talks about people who were going to be disciples. Now, the word Christian actually appears very infrequently, but it actually is a descriptor word. It was a word used to describe those who were looking a whole lot like the person they had crucified. Jesus. They were saying there's these people that are following Jesus are looking eerily similar, not physical appearance, but the way in which they're living out their life in a countercultural way in society and culture. It was getting the attention of the known world. And that idea of being a disciple is intended to get people's attention. Now, the big idea for the series that we're using is really simple. But becoming a Christian does not make you a disciple. Becoming a disciple makes you Christian. What makes us Christian is being fully devoted followers of Jesus. So the definition for discipleship that we're using for the series is that discipleship is the process of being shaped or formed by God's word to the image of Christ in order to become a fully surrendered Christ follower. It is the process of being shaped by the Bible, by the word of God, and then being shaped into the form or image of Jesus, of Christ, so that we can then in turn become fully surrendered Christ followers. That, by the way is the heartbeat of our vision here at Grace Crossing Church, fully surrendered Christ followers. And the reason it's the heartbeat of our vision is because it's the heartbeat of the scripture. It's the heartbeat of the gospels. So I think one of the things to realize about this idea of discipleship is when we speak of discipleship, discipleship has a heart. And the heart of discipleship is relationship. In fact, simply put, discipleship is relationship. It is relationship with God. It is relationship with our true self. And it is relationship with other Christ followers. Discipleship at its heartbeat is relational in its nature. Now, there are two questions that we are always asking of those with whom we are in relationship. And here are the two questions. Do you love me? And can I depend on you? Think about it. 
every significant relationship that we have, we are asking in some form or fashion those two questions. Do you love me and can I depend on you? In other words, can I count on you to love me unconditionally and can I trust that I can depend on you without limitations, without hesitation, without any restrictions? We are asking that question of each other. We're also asking that question of God. Do you love me? Can I depend on you? And I think the scripture teaches that God is also asking that question of all of us. John's Gospel, chapter 14, Jesus really succinctly connects these two. He says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Listen, discipleship is not just about us keeping God's word to us, but I think it is also about us keeping our word to God. I think it works both ways. So in this series, we've talked about, as I introduced it a few weeks back, that discipleship really has three elements to it. Think of discipleship as a process, as a posture, and as a practice. Last weekend, we really drilled down on the idea of discipleship as a process. Next weekend, we're going to focus on discipleship as a practice. But this morning, we want to talk about discipleship as a posture. Namely, the posture of our relationship to God and our relationship with God. What we want to talk about this morning is how do we identify with Christ and then how are we identified by other people? How are we identified as fully surrendered Christ followers? So this morning for my title, I'm using yet another road sign by way of setup for our talk today. Here's the road sign. Road narrows. Can you think of a place, can you think of a drive that you've taken? Can you think of a road that is particularly narrow when you drive it? Uh, The drive that I've taken many times from here to eastern Pennsylvania, there is a road between Wheeling, West Virginia and New Stanton, Pennsylvania, just before you get on the turnpike on 70 East. That is very narrow. There there doesn't need to be anything happening on the road. It's just a narrow drive on this particular road. And I've driven this road when it's been under construction. And I've driven this road when it's been under construction with pouring rain or snow or sleet. Your world gets real small. When you're on a road like that that narrows, I mean, you're that far from the median and you're that far from the semi-tractor trailer you're passing on the other side. Narrow road. We want to talk today about discipleship and the way in which it narrows us and focuses us on identifying with Christ and being identified as fully surrendered Christ followers. 
In July of 1979, Australian rock band ACDC released their fifth full-length album entitled Highway to Hell. I was just entering high school when this band that had already become pretty successful released this album and their title song, Highway to Hell. Now, for those of you who may not be familiar with this particular song, let me just read just a few of the opening lyrics. And some of you are going to sing this tune as I'm saying these words, because you know the song. Living easy, living free, season ticket on a one-way ride, asking nothing, leave me be, taking everything in my stride, don't need reason, don't need rhyme, ain't nothing I would rather do, going down party time. My friends are going to be there too. I'm on the highway to hell. Come on, how many of you are familiar with that song? Don't, nothing to be ashamed of. Well, you know it, right? All right. And how many of you are singing the tune as I'm saying the lyrics? Mo many of us know the song. What we may not know is that this was the final album that the lead singer Bon Scott would be part of. Because Bon Scott, who was the lead of ACDC, was found in the back of his friend's car just six months later in February of 1980, just six months after the release of the song, Highway to Hell. Someone else who died at 33 spoke of a highway to hell. He also spoke of another highway, an alternate highway, a more meaningful highway, another more meaningful way in which we can identify and have relationship with God. That 33-year-old, of course, was Jesus. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7. Here's what Jesus said, verses 13 through 14. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few ever find it. Now, what Jesus is doing here is he's comparing two highways. He's comparing two roads, two paths by which we can choose to live out our lives. The one he calls a very narrow road He calls it one with a very narrow gate. The other, he says, is a broad gate with a wide road. One seems very attractive that many people want to walk out their lives, but the other one is the road less traveled. It's the one that feels more restrictive. It's the one that might feel more challenging or more difficult for us to live. And, and what Jesus is doing here is he's actually giving us, I think, a paradox of sorts. What Jesus here is actually suggesting is this. He is saying that the broad gate with the wide road leads to a very narrow ending. 
But the gate that has a small gate but a, and a very narrow road leads to a very wide, broad ending. He really is really emphasizing a word from Solomon, a verse from Solomon in Proverbs that said, there is a, a way that seems right to a person, but in the end, it leads to death. What Jesus here is saying is that there is one way that leads to life, and there is another way that is truly a dead end. And what we got to choose is the way we're going to live out our relationship with Jesus. I don't think here Jesus is only talking about the path or the destination. I think Jesus here is also talking about the posture, the way in which we choose to live out and walk out our relationship with God here on this earth. Now, I love the way the message captures these verses. Let's reread them from the message. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. Don't look for shortcuts to God. The market is flooded with surefire, easygoing formulas for a successful life that can be practiced in your spare time. Don't fall for stuff for that stuff, even though crowds of people do. The way to life, to God, is vigorous and requires total attention. Here's what I think Jesus is suggesting as he talks and refers to the posture by which we follow Jesus. I think he's suggesting that we stay on the path even when it isn't convenient. He is suggesting we stay on the path even when we feel like we're the only ones still walking on it. He's suggesting that we resist the temptation to take shortcuts in our relationship with God. He's suggesting that we refuse to give God our leftovers, our leftover time, our, our leftover resources, our leftover energy, that we just simply resist that temptation to give God what is left over. What, he, what I think Jesus is saying is, a relationship with me is going to require your undivided, full attention. You're gonna have to give all of yourself to this thing because you cannot live it in your own power and strength. It's going to take a daily walk with me. Now, one of my favorite ways to connect with God is walking. There's just something about being in nature with my body in motion that brings me alive spiritually. When I walk, I meditate. When I walk, I worship. When I walk, I pray. When I walk, I listen. When I walk, I'm paying attention more to the things that are around me. And often in my walk, I'm led to places that I would otherwise never go and never experience. That's the beauty of a walk, especially when it's a detour walk. Now, when you come to the New Testament, the Bible often uses the language of a walk or a journey to describe what our relationship with God is like. Paul does this often when he talks about that our journey is like a walk. In Galatians chapter five, 
verse number 16, Paul says, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of your flesh. I love the language Paul uses here. Walk by the spirit. What he's saying really is walk alongside the spirit. Sometimes in our life, we get so caught up in not failing God and not falling behind God that we miss the opportunity just to walk alongside of him. That we can just be present with him, that he is present with us. And he's present with us no matter what's going on in our lives, that God wants us to walk alongside of him. Paul goes on to say this in verse number 25 of Galatians 5. He says, since we live by the Spirit, notice it, let us keep in step. Let us walk with the Spirit. Now, I am captivated by how often the Gospels give us insight into the walks of Jesus. I'm actually surprised how often, when you think about the Gospels, how often it tells us what Jesus was doing as he was walking with God and how an ordinary walk many times turned into the extraordinary. I think it's safe to say that Jesus' walk was his work. It's estimated that in Jesus' messianic ministry of three years, that he may have walked up to 15 to 20 miles every day except on the Sabbath. And during those walks, the extraordinaries happen. God's doing some of his best work as Jesus is walking. People are being healed. Faith is being restored. People who are not loved are feeling deeply loved by God, many for the first time. There are miracles. Funeral processions are stopping because Jesus is walking in the middle of them. Something's happening. Storms are being calmed as Jesus, what? Walks on water. And there's this invitation that you and I get to be part of walking with God, walking by his spirit as we're living out our life. The other thing we learn in the gospels are some of the common postures that get exposed right while Jesus is walking. While he's walking with others, there's an exposure of some of the postures that many people take. They're common. In fact, they're so ordinary, we see them in our Christian faith often today. Luke's gospel actually gives us insight into three of them. The first common but mistaken posture is this. I will walk with Jesus as long as it doesn't make me uncomfortable. I will walk with Jesus as long as it doesn't make me uncomfortable. Luke's gospel chapter nine, verse number 57. Notice it. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. I mean, that's the kind of person I want at Grace Crossing Church, right? Person who goes, listen, I'm all in. But notice how Jesus responds, verse 58. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. What's Jesus tuned into here? Jesus is tuned in to a guy who actually isn't willing to become uncomfortable. He's willing to follow Jesus as long 
as it remains comfortable. But the moment he finds no place to rest, life is going to get very uncomfortable for him. The moment that Jesus takes him to a place where all the modern conveniences of that day are not there, he's going to begin to grumble and gripe and complain and his heart will not be fully surrendered. Let me just say two things. One, I, I think I've learned in my Christian journey that the uncomfortable place is always the place of invitation for growth. Whenever I have found my own life being stirred with something that makes me uncomfortable, I can either resist it, I can complain about it, I can defend it, or I can simply see it as an opportunity and invitation for growth. And I think that that is a big part of what the Christian journey, the discipleship journey is all about. There is going to be levels of discomfort we're going to experience in our relationship with God as we're growing. As I have walked back into my relationship with my family of origin, my mother and my siblings, who I've been estranged from for many years, let me tell you, there's lots of pleasure, but there's lots of moments of discomfort. Because I'm coming face to face with some of the emotional deficits that have shaped my life for many years. Coming to terms with things that I realize are very uncomfortable places for me to go back, but if I wanna break the power of the past over me, it's important that I be willing to be made uncomfortable to let God do his deepest work. And there are many people that wanna follow Jesus until it becomes uncomfortable. The second person that Jesus is walking with, that he actually begins to expose their posture, is a person who says, I'm willing to walk and follow Jesus unless it interrupts my future plans. Verse number 59 of Luke's gospel. He said to another man, follow me, but he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. That sounds very noble, doesn't it? Most scholars, however, believe that this guy is not asking for permission to go back home. They also believe that this guy's dad was actually not dead, that he was likely very much alive. And what this guy could have been saying to Jesus was, I want to make sure that my future plans are fully executed, that I can do what I want to do, how I want to do it, and as long as following you doesn't interrupt that, then I'm okay. And so it seems like Jesus' response is just cold. It's just heartless. Here's how he responds in verse 60. Jesus knows the heart of this guy. Jesus said, let the dead bury their own dead but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Those seem like really hard words for us to understand why would Jesus say this? And I think what Jesus is getting at is that many times in discipleship, there are things that God is going to ask of us that are gonna feel like an invasion and an interruption of our plans and our future. And the question is, are we willing to identify with Christ and have a posture of identifying with him even when it becomes really inconvenient. 
The third, I think, guy that Jesus exposes here on his walk is this guy who says, I am willing to follow unless it upsets my relational structures. Luke chapter six, chapter nine, verse 61. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Again, this, this feels so noble. And why would Jesus not urge this guy to do that? Well, I think Jesus knew that there was a, perhaps a very unhealthy enmeshed relationship that he had with his family that actually needed their approval before he was going to be able to fully follow. He wanted to be seen as a disciple. He just didn't want to make whatever sacrifices would be necessary to be a disciple. And I can tell you that following Jesus sometimes will interrupt and will upset our relational structures. It sometimes can create tension in relationships. Never easy. But when you're willing to move God's way into relationship, it means that we be willing to disrupt things that God may say, this is not really right. And I want you to be my voice in this. So here's how Jesus responds. Verse number 62. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Again, he had already started moving as a follower of Jesus. The problem was he wasn't willing to make the deep commitment that was necessary to be a fully surrendered Christ follower. He said, listen, if you're gonna grab hold of the plow with me, your eyes have got to be forward. You've got to be moving in this direction. There is no looking back. We've got to burn the ships, so to speak. So there's nothing you can go back to at the end of it all. That I am everything for you. Now, Paul the Apostle, I think, shows us on the other hand what a posture of being a fully surrendered Christ follower looks like. He shows us how to both relate to God and relate with God through Jesus. He said, this is how I'm going to identify with him. And this is how others can identify me. He gives us both a, I think, a very convicting but compelling image of what a fully surrendered disciple looks like. I said early on in this series, this might sound elementary. This is radical stuff we're talking about because it is so counterintuitive to what we know in the way we often think of Christianity. In two verses, Paul powerfully gives us this posture that a true disciple must have and calls us to it. The first one is found in Galatians chapter two, verse number 20, when Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live but Christ lives in me. Now, there's a lot going on here. That's one simple verse, but it's not simple. There's a lot happening in this verse. Have you ever 
known someone who died and then lived to tell you about it? That's actually what Paul's doing here. Paul actually saying, I have died, but I've lived to tell you about my death. And Paul here doesn't say, I have died. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. There is a subtle but very significant difference. A person can kill themselves, but a person cannot crucify themselves. Crucifixion requires submission and surrender to the will of another. It means that we're willing to let them do a work in us that brings us to the point of death. What what Paul is really saying here is this. I daily assume the posture of a crucified or dead person in my old self in order that my new true self in Christ can emerge. Paul is saying, I'm very much alive. I'm very much alive. Look how animated I am. But he said, what I want you to understand is the life in me is no longer the old self. It is now Christ's life that is living in me. And the question is, if that's the posture of how we identify with Christ, if we're going to do what Paul calls us to here, it is radical, but here's what happens. Other people begin to identify us as fully surrendered Christ followers. And I think there are some characteristics of those who are crucified in Christ. Number one, I think crucified people are broken. You can always tell the earmark of crucified people because they're not ashamed about their brokenness. They're willing and readily admit their brokenness. They no longer strive to cover their weaknesses, cover their inadequacies, cover their failures, but they are readily willing to say, I am weak. They're willing to be transparent, but so much more. They are killing their pride. They no longer fight for the need to be right, but they fight for the true needs in God. Crucified people are broken. Crucified people have relinquished control. You can always tell a a person who is growing in crucifixion because they're giving up control and they're willing to do it, even though it's painful. I've said often to Grace Crossing Church, I'm a control freak who is trying to recover and learn how to be more surrendered, to let go of my grip on things, to be willing just to trust God. And this pandemic, man, this has supercharged me in that. There's so little I've had control of. And in that, God's deepening a work of trust. Crucified people are broken. They they have relinquished control. And the other thing I'd say about crucified people that becomes an earmark, an identifier, is they are inoffensive and unoffendable. They are inoffensive and unoffendable. They crucified people aren't offending anyone anymore, right? They're, they're dead. But neither can you offend them any. You can't hurt them any deeper than what's already been done. What Paul does throughout his letters 
is Paul says, this is the posture I want to invite you to. And I know it sounds painful, but trust me, at the end of this road, there is incredible life. Because when you come to the end of your old self, your false self, you then discover your true self in Christ. And man, there's so much life in that for you. It's for the betterment of who you are. And Paul throughout the the New Testament often says things like this. I want to invite you to join me. Just like Jesus invited him to join him. He now turns and invites us. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, here's just one way he says it. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. What's he saying? He's saying Jesus was crucified. I followed him in his crucifixion. Now I want to invite you to follow me in that crucifixion. So, so this past week, I, I had a, a tree at my house looked at growing up against my house. So I had a company come out and take a look at it, and we were chatting about cutting back those branches and what needed to happen, and he spent time just sharing with me what he would do and talking with me. And then he said, in the course of our conversation, he said to me, you know, what I would charge you to do this, you can go down to Rural King And you can buy a piece of equipment where you can actually take care of that tree and then then you can have the equipment. Now, in that moment, he earned my business. He did too. He earned my business. Because anybody that will be honest enough with you to tell you that and actually will say, I don't need this business, you can just do this, I I, high respect. Here's what I said to him. I said, I appreciate that. And that may be true. But I said, you have something I don't have you have experience for how to use the equipment. I don't know how to use that equipment. And if I tried to use that equipment, I would likely butcher this tree because I don't even know what steps I may need to take with the equipment. Listen, friends, it is one thing to believe that prayer works. It is another thing to get the experience of doing the hard work of prayer. It is one thing to read your Bible. It is a completely different thing to learn and get the experience for how the Bible reads you. I had to learn that by experience. I had to learn that by following the example of others. Can I tell you, discipleship means that we already have the equipment by God's spirit. It's given to us. But what discipleship does is it helps us to learn through the examples of others, to gain experience by walking with others. That's why I said discipleship is relationship with God, but it's relationship with God's body, with one another. We need each other to learn how to become disciples. I can't do it alone. You say, but you're the pastor. You should know how to do this alone. No, it was never intended to be a solo act. Discipleship was intended from the very beginning to be a relationship where everybody is part of it together. So in discipleship, we not only get equipment, we also get the experience of learning how to use it. The second verse Paul gives us And we'll close with this. When he talks about this posture, and he says, this is the posture that I'm calling you to. It's found in Philippians chapter one, verse 21. 
to me, to live is Christ. To die is gain. To me, to live is Christ. To die is gain. Have you ever thought about what it is you want to be remembered for? Have you ever thought about when people talk about your life after you're gone, what is it you want them to say about you? If you had to pick just a very succinct epitaph to be known by, what would it be? I think Paul here is giving us his epitaph. It's his preference. What he wants to be known for is that to live is Christ, to die is gain. A number of years ago, Kelly and I refreshed our estate plans. And in that refreshing, we decided to actually write a personal testament to put with our will. We wanted a way that we could still have a voice when our voice has been silenced. A way that we could still tell people who we lived for and what we lived for. I open mine with these words. So where does one begin to write their final sermon? The truth is, you and I are right now writing our final sermon. We're writing it right now. And someday what is said about us will actually be a direct reflection of the way that we live in a posture toward God, toward Jesus, toward our fellow brothers and sisters. And so I want to ask you as we close this morning this question. If you could put anything in that equation, let's go back to that verse. If you could put anything in that equation, to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. What is it this morning, if you're being honest with yourself, what is it you would put in the equation? For me to live is. Go. For me to live is the weekend. For me to live is football. I love football. But it isn't my life. For me to live is promotions, success, big bank accounts, huge net worth. Listen, friends, we can put anything in that equation we want. Here's the question to ask yourself this morning. If I'm honest about what it is I'm living for, can I say with Paul, for me to die is gain? And the likelihood is if Christ is not there at the center of our lives, if we don't have a daily posture like Paul of being crucified with Christ so that we're no longer living, but Jesus is living in us, I'm not sure that we'll be able to say to die is, is a gain. And so this morning, I ask us to do a spiritual reset when it comes to who and how we identify with Christ and how the world identifies us as Christ followers. I'm going to ask you to bow your head, please, this morning. And before we have one final song of worship, let me just pray and 
For those of you that are here in person this morning, those of you that are joining us by way of our broadcast this morning, I'm gonna ask everyone just to bow their heads right now and take just a moment and before God, would you ask yourself that question? Would you do a inventory in God's presence this morning? God, how would I finish the equation? What is it I live for? Because discipleship means that we are putting God first and we are giving God our best. What is it that gets your first? What is it that gets your best? We, Lord, lay down our lives to you today. This is a challenging, challenging message because it's just so counter, Lord, to everything we think about. As I read the Gospels and I, I see how deeply you loved people who were walking in ways that were not the direction toward you, how often you invited them to join you, but Lord, how you raised the bar so high that they couldn't do it unless they fully surrendered. It would be the only way. And I think it's the way you wanted it to be. So that God, we would have to relinquish control of the way it would look. I pray that as we evaluate our lives today, I pray that as we search our hearts, that God, we would be able to say with Paul, I am crucified with Christ. For me to live is Christ. For me to die is gain. May that be our posture as followers of Christ here at Grace Crossing Church. We invite you, Lord, into our lives and into our hearts. Grow us. And help us, I pray, to continue, Lord, to receive your love, which makes it possible for us to surrender because we know that you love us and we know that we can depend on you. And we need that, God, if we're gonna surrender. So I pray that you'll guide and direct our hearts as we meditate, as we think, and as we hold these truths in your presence this week. I pray it in Christ's name. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Grace Crossing Church, including service times and directions, check us out on the web at www.gracecrossingchurch.net. We hope to see you at one of our upcoming weekend worship gatherings. Have a great day.